0: Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well being to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures, and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the podcast, and you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at High. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gillian Isaacs Russell, a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and a member of the British Psychoanalytic Council, the American Psychoanalytic Association, and the International Psychoanalytical Association. Having served on the editorial board as book reviews editor, Gillian is currently on the reviewing panel for the British Journal of Psychotherapy, and she was recently co opted to the COVID 19 advisory team for the American Psychoanalytic Association. Her fascinating book, Screen Relations, explores the limits of computer-mediated psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, and her work examines how some of our most intimate relationships, including that of analyst and patient, are affected by technologically mediated communication. I interviewed Gillian in the first season of the show, in episode 8, and her rich insights and area of study were so pertinent to this moment in time that I had to invite her back. With each of us living different experiences of what it means to be under lockdown during this pandemic we explore how denial grief loss and fear can show up what personal adaptation and transition might look like and how we might begin to give ourselves permission to experience and integrate what we're living through we also discuss the role of eye gaze and embodied presence how increased screen time may bring with it both losses and gains and what we may come to value as we move through this time together. Gillian also mentions several fascinating studies throughout the episode, which I will link to in the show notes page if you fancy diving in a bit deeper. As always, I hope you enjoy the show. Gillian, thank you so much for joining me from what I believe is a very snowy, boulder Colorado.
1: Yes, we have about 10 inches this morning. It's a spring storm, which normally people relish uh, because it's great skiing. (laughs) But all the ski resorts, of course, have been shut. And so we're just appreciating the view and the silence.
0: I bet the silence is beautiful. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I want to dive in. Um, Of course, we had the pleasure of having a conversation back in the first series And because of your speciality and your work exploring the relationship mediated by screens, um, I was very keen to get you back because this is the perfect moment to explore this in a much broader context. So the first question I want to ask you is, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Oh
1: my goodness, that (laughs) is a global question. (laughs) Um, I think we are being plunged into a situation where we're experiencing grief and loss and fear and most overwhelmingly being out of control and not knowing. Hmm. And I think that what's important is everyone is in this situation, um, which has great implications for both clinicians and um, parents, and politicians, and um, anyone who normally leads the way in things, thinking about uh, what is going to happen next. Mm.
0: I wonder what your thoughts are about, because um, obviously it's not entirely affecting everyone in the same way, but the, the democratising mm. element, the fact that this is something which affects people regardless of their status in terms of wealth, gender, ethnicity, privilege. Um, of course, the access to medical supplies and to infrastructures does change based on the mm. random luck of where we're born. But what are your thoughts about how this might equalize things in terms of power? So the ways in which people make decisions around power within politics, for instance.
1: Well, I'm not a politician or a social scientist in that way but I can think about it perhaps emotionally Mm. and um, where I think I would go is questions of empathy Mm. and I'm thinking about Boris Johnson um, who actually had the experience of having the virus And of course, I don't know him personally, and I don't know what's going on in his mind. But I did see his statement, Mm. um, which was very articulate, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on. And I think that having experienced the virus, having experienced the NHS um, responding in such a spectacular way, as they always do, Mm. to this emergency, must have... I'm hoping it's changed something inside him so that he can have a certain immediacy and empathy with those who are suffering, with those who are working, so that there is a true sense of being in the same boat. Mm. And I don't think that that is the same for all politicians. And indeed, it's not the same for all human beings in this situation. You know, the first stage of grief is denial. Mm. And um, denial is a stage that many people may still, after four or five weeks, depending on where you are, we've been in lockdown for four weeks now, Mm. um, you may still be in a sense of denial where it's terribly important not to take in the sadness, the grief, the loss, the fear, the uncertainty. So I guess the democratization, if you're talking about it, hopefully will be a democratization of empathy, of, mm-hmm. of being able to feel that it's all us. It's not just us and them. Whether that happens equally for people across the board, I don't know. Probably not.
0: <laughs> that is fascinating. One of mm-hmm. um, one of my friends who I interviewed recently in the last season, Tomas chamorro looks at um, leadership and yes. gender and incompetence versus competence and skills required to have leaders who are able to lead um, more efficiently across the board. And one of the things that was really interesting, which ties into, I, th- I think, what you're pointing towards is... This ability to empathise, the ability to be compassionate, to collaborate, to to have this mindset of us together, we're going to find a way forward out of this. Um, and I wonder, it's more of a kind of thought experiment in my mind, but I wonder how this might shape the ways in which leaders are invited to show up for their countries, for their citizens, for the organisations that they represent um, and yes, and one would hope that empathy is something that that climbs up the list.
1: I guess um, you know it brings to mind the leadership in New Zealand, mm. where Jacinda Dunn has um, a very excellent way of communicating. You talked about gender, and it, I don't think it is completely across gender. Mm. Lines, but she certainly has a free way of be of using her empathy and communicating to the people in in a thoughtful and warm way. Whatever the crisis is, she has done this before, mm. um, and so yes, you know I think it is interesting what skills politicians can call on in this time. Mm.
0: I want to weave in your work with psychotherapy and mm. the mediation of relationship through screens. Mm. And in our last interview, we talked about your fantastic book, Screen Relations, which explores the limits of computer mediated psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. And I'm really curious that particularly in this moment, um, especially as actually you've recently been co-opted to the COVID-19 advisory team for the American Psychoanalytic Association, Um, especially in this moment, what are some of the trends that you're seeing around how screens are being used both within the consulting room and beyond? What insights might you be able to share around that?
1: In the past, um, before COVID-19, clinicians were grappling with the need to make informed decisions about the best way to use technology, Mm. um, as well as communicate that understanding to patients And we had the leisure to examine the emerging clinical and multidisciplinary research. But now COVID-19 has forced all clinicians to abruptly adopt technologically mediated treatment because it's right now the safest way to practice. Mm. We all had to move treatment, supervision, and classes online. So in fact, our current practice a remote practice, has nothing to do with personal preference or professional controversies Mm. about distance treatment or training. We didn't have a transition period. We didn't have a choice. There were no exceptions. And we all feel equally vulnerable. So I think... Part of the impact at this point is a huge scramble for everyone to both um, familiarize themselves with the nuts and bolts, the concrete Mm. nuts and bolts of technology and using it in order to maintain a connection with their patients, but also, of course, trying to get their heads round the losses that happen when we are using technology and how to deal with them to enable us to make our continuing treatment uh, better better than nothing as good as it can possibly be, and um, that has that has a lot of ins and outs um, and of course, in a wider way, everyone who wants to connect has moved to screens for zoom family chats and parties and dinners and so that too is a huge um, accommodation that everyone is having to make. And in I feel that if one can understand what one is losing, um, how it's working, it may be that we can manage this hopefully tra- temporary transition um, in the best way possible.
0: I'm really interested in, in exploring a bit more this sense of loss and grief. Mm. And I think um, also the the limits of what technology can provide us, mm-hmm. because I think, in the mad scramble to get everything online to to make sure that life carries on as normally as possible for those with access to technology and the internet, um, it can be very easy to just think, well, we can just completely transplant our in person physically present lives into this virtual space, and of course it 's not that simple. What are some of the most salient limitations that you are seeing or grappling with or that you're seeing other clinicians talk about um, when it comes to the use of technology for in-person, quote-unquote, mm. uh, interactions? Uh, quite a few.
1: The first thing um, which we may even experience in our communication today is the limitations of technology in general. Um, calls drop, <laughs> there's bad communication in terms of static Um, there may be several tries to get online, all of those things interrupt the smooth flow of communication. So that just at the outset is frustrating it's intrusive and mm. in terms of um, an intimate communication may have may take on a bigger um, uh, meaning in terms of the frustration and difficulty of getting to of of getting close to someone else mm. and the things that stand in the way um, other things. I think many, many people who are working from home, and certainly every clinician that I've spoken to, talks about the exhaustion hmm. of using Zoom hmm. um, uh, or any other platform of of being of being online. At the end of the day, there's a peculiar sort of exhaustion that occurs. And that happens for several reasons, and it's important to know that. One is that um, when you're, if you're using the visuals, you're seeing a talking head up close yeah. all the time. You're focusing very, very closely at the other person. When I did my research, I remember one of the people I interviewed described it as being glued to the screen. Hmm. And when that happens, it does a few things. One thing is it stops your eyes from normally wandering around a room as you do when you're thinking that's what I'm doing right now because <laughs> I'm talking to you because I'm not seeing you. You know, I'm sort of looking at my environment and I think that's an aid to sort of checking in inside thinking um, in terms of clinically working it's a way of being in touch with whatever's going on in your own reverie so that you can have a free flow Mm. of thought that's very much interrupted when you're glued to the screen Um, it's been pointed out too that looking at someone and fixing your eyes on them um, and by the way you can't actually have eye contact unless you have very, very fancy technological equipment, so you don't make real eye contact, which is a, a, a an interruption in communication in itself. But looking at someone like that actually sets up your fight-or-flight hmm. response. That's fascinating. And so there's a lot of anxiety that comes up when you're actually gazing at someone's head. And it's been suggested that actually uh, making... Playing with the adjustments so that things are smaller or perhaps doing audio only for a bit can be more relaxing um, to the system and then and then finally, there is this whole issue which I wrote about and talked about with you last time, which is the feeling of presence mm. and presence, as we talked about before, is a neurobiological response. When you are in a shared environment with someone and you are aware that there's at least the potential mm. to enact something that impacts the other person. Yeah. And that lets you know that it's real, that you're not dreaming, that you're not, uh, it's not all taking place in your head. And of course, you don't have that presence when you're working on screen. Mm. What you have is something called telepresence, which is the illusion. That And you can maintain that for short periods of time. But the technology itself, the awareness of the screen, various things impinge on that and break your sense of presence. And what happens then is that it becomes extremely tiring because you have to keep finding it again. And also the focus that is required for you to actually communicate with someone because your normal uh, nonverbal cues are hugely diminished Mm. when you're not in the same room with someone also takes you away from that sensation of presence or telepresence so all in all it is very very tiring
0: i wonder also if it can contribute to a sense of disconnection and isolation to not be in physical presence with someone else and to have to focus presumably consciously in the other person. So, for instance, I had a Zoom meeting with a client a while ago and it was a setup in which there were three or four of us at any one time on a screen. And having to look between these three or four live streams of faces was um, uncomfortable. I found it uncomfortable. And I think it was a sense of being... It felt like being almost surveilled, whereas in normal conversation... The person who's speaking Mm -hmm. would probably hold the attention both physically and intellectually of the others and so we might turn to listen to that person so you're only focusing on one individual at a time and I wonder how that also changes so the the distribution of attention in a group setting online how that changes the ways in which we relate to those people Mm -hmm.
1: Mm, Yes, it, it changes it tremendously. And it's been suggested, if you have a choice with the platform you're using of adjusting things, that you might adjust it to the setting where the person speaking is who you see mainly in the in the actual on the on the screen. So, you know, I think what you're noticing is is quite interesting. In that way, I I think... So there's an adjustment. There's an adjustment one can make that would improve your experience. At the same time, to be aware that, unlike uh, what Winnicott describes in terms of creating creativity in a child, that you can play, that you can be alone in the presence of another, I think that sometimes what we become aware of when we're online is that we're alone in the absence of the other. Hmm. And that is you asked about grief, that's part of the grieving, that Mm. one is very aware that whilst we can see that person, whilst we can talk with that person, that indeed they are not there.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's making me think about long distance relationships and how difficult they can be when the the period of separation is too great.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And I think the positive about the technology is at least it enables us to keep To maintain some form of connection and having that relieves us somewhat but in this particular covid situation we're looking into the future and it's unknown as to how long we're going to be like this and that really is something that is quite difficult to support inside
0: Mm. i'm curious with the four weeks in which you've been in lockdown in the states have you witnessed a shift in how people started using technology to begin with and how maybe they're using it now? Or has it been fairly consistent um, across the board in your in your experiences?
1: Um, I just want to add that four weeks is for my state, Colorado, um, and that it may actually be longer for some other states because unlike the UK, um, each state imposes their own shelter-at-home rules, and so they've happened at different times. So for us, I think probably there was a kind of um, burst of let's all have Zoom parties and <laughs> Zoom cocktail parties, and you know there was a there was a great sort of social burst at the beginning, mm. which has given way to. Um, some exhaustion and tiredness and need to recoup um, in between communications. So although people are using technology tremendously, and I think the evidence of that is that it's um, sometimes very difficult to get good connections online, Mm -hmm. platforms are being overused, Um, at the same time I think people are needing to have more space to not be online and to have some silence and to have some time just uh, doing individual things uh, without that kind of communication, which is pretty stimulating, perhaps overstimulating in some ways.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I found that the, um, and this is something that my friends have reflected back, many of them, that the family groups, for instance, that I'm a member of previously were not particularly active and now every single day there's just so much content and it gets to the point where it actually feels overwhelming and touching back on this aspect of loss and grief there is also a sense of loss for me at least of a private flow of time in which I'm not expected to respond in which I'm not called upon to engage in socializing and I wonder if there's something that you can suggest that helps people to recognize whether that loss is happening to them and what they might do to help recalibrate things somehow.
1: I think your description of that is very beautiful. (laughs) Um, That's right, our whole, whole rhythm has been disrupted. And because the potential, for instance, to visit people, to be in touch with people, has been eliminated, for instance, both of my children are in London, and mm. I'm here in the United States, um, then I think that in the beginning there's been a tremendous rush to be in contact, because I can't. I know I can't just hop on a plane, or they can't hop on a plane, if we needed to, to see each other. Mm. Um, and so... I I would follow along from what you're suggesting you're doing yourself, that you have to put that recalibration time into every day uh, where there isn't the stress and there isn't the pressure to be in touch. And it may be that one would actually have to say out loud to one's loved ones, um, you know, it, it is very exhausting to be Zooming all the time or on the phone all the time. And so I'm going to check in. At, at every other day or every mm. 3 days or if there's an emergency we'll check in but otherwise you know this is the this is the period of time that we'll take and for you to tell yourself well if someone texts you and this is this was true before covid as well you don't need to have an immediate response you can perhaps check all your emails or all your texts two times a day mm. um, and that way just have some downtime from technology entirely. It was a good idea before COVID, and it's still a good idea to give yourself a rest. And and just technically as well, I would add, um, I found when I was writing my book that I was getting terrible eye strain and headaches from being on a screen for so long. And so um, you can easily get, for instance, on Amazon, um, computer glasses that filter the blue light so Mm. that your eyes and your head are not so affected. And that's another thing when you are online that you can do to help yourself. But I think you're quite right that time for recalibration is extremely important. Um, If it's possible, and I know it's different for people in different places, I'm out pretty much comparatively in the country so I can take walks in nature mm. um, if you're in a city at least to be able to have some time at some point if you're allowed to to have a walk in a park with your mask on or whatever is required where you are very very important just to get out to make a change of scene
0: mm. It's tricky because... So I'm living um, in Barcelona now and you're not allowed out for exercise. Um, Mm. You can take your dog out if you have one. But the police are fining people for going out for non-essential tasks such as fetching medication or buying food. And it's really tricky. The other day we ended up doing um, a food shop and we went and did a bunch of different food shops. And in the end, it took us about 50 minutes. And the sense of relief coming back into the flat Mm. after just being outside for that brief amount of time, chatting to the local um, small shop owners at a distance, but being in physical presence, again, it's just... It was it was huge. I even bumped into a friend. Well, I say bumped. Of course, no one's doing any bumping. But um <laughs> was verbally bumping into mm-hmm. a friend who called out to me from across the street. And we had kind of like a bit of a shouting catch up, <laughs> which had its own charms. But um, I do wonder with this if there is something special in this opportunity for recognizing things that otherwise we take for granted and of course I'm talking here from a position of not being on the front line and everyone's experience is going to be really dramatically different depending on their context but what opportunities do you think there are in a situation where we're in varying degrees of lockdown for people to reflect on how they live their lives?
1: I think it depends on what stage you're at. One of the important things, just to sort of turn that on its head, is to not pressure yourself to take those opportunities yet. Um, I think people need to give themselves some permission not to be hugely productive or hugely creative <laughs> yeah. or or really, you know, take stock of your life. Because there's such an adjustment process going on. There's such an impact mm. in the way things are different. So I think there's a first stage there, which is not to put pressure on yourself. Um, somebody, I think, wrote described it as productivity porn. Everything <laughs> that we're reading about, um, where, you know, people are making huge cakes and knitting sweaters and, you know, writing books or whatever. And I think the reality is that for a lot of people, that's not possible now. It's very difficult to be creative when you don't feel safe.
0: Yeah.
1: What you're really concerned about is making yourself feel safe first. And that's technically an impossibility because nobody really feels safe. Mm. So So I think the first stage there is to actually work on feeling safe, on noticing things like how it feels if you do go out and shop for food and then come back, um, to have some time in the day where you just do self-care. The smallest things, taking a lovely bath, you know, that kind of thing. And so, so that's the first stage. If you get to the point, depending on how long you've been in lockdown, where you're beginning to have some impulse to have creative thought, to have, to take stock of yourself, to, I don't know, paint a picture. Well, that's wonderful. And and you know that means that you perhaps have got to a stage where um, you feel a bit more comfortable in your routine. But I think creating the routine first is the most important thing. And that means creating some sense of containment and safety I just wanted to comment on your story of going out and and sort of figuratively bumping into your friend (laughs) because a colleague of mine told me a very similar story the other day. It was very moving. And that is she's a clinician and she has been working online all day, every day. And so she's been in touch with lots and lots of people, Mm. but of course not in real presence, in telepresence, which has its limitations. And she and her family went out for a walk Um, which we still are allowed to do. We're allowed to get exercise and go out as long as we maintain social distancing. And she was outside the house of a friend and those friends saw her and came to their front porch and Mm. she was out on the pavement Mm. and they were waving. And for the first time, she began to cry. And I think it was the sense that they that it was true presence that it was real presence that mm. even if she wasn't going to run up and hug them or shake their hands that there was the potential to do that and that created a certain reality that she had been missing out on in all of the telepresence uh, contacts that she had had during the week
0: mm. so
1: near and yet so far but the potential was there
0: that's very touching Mm. I had something um, that struck me quite unusually the other day so one of the last people I invited to to speak with on the show is my good friend Blanche who is um, a very creative person she is among many things, she's a musician and we sing a lot together Um, and one of the Mm. things that I enjoyed before lockdown is meeting with her and maybe we sing in the tube or maybe we sing when we're walking or we'll do little gatherings (laughs) and one of my most deeply treasured delights is Hearing her sing, or singing harmonies to her singing, or sharing a song, or listening to some poetry with her, um, and it's something which always just gives me this sense of deep aliveness and well-being and feeling emotionally vibrant. Whatever the feeling is, it's it's something like that. And this is something which I'd really been missing. And she did just it was a live stream on Instagram for Open Folk Barcelona. And she was singing these songs that I'm so used to singing with her, and just there was this moment where I was—I don't know what I—I I think I was—I <laughs> was mending some holes in some jeans, very unglamorous, um, at home and listening <laughs> to her singing and singing along. And I, even though she couldn't hear me, because it's something that we've done so many times together in the physical presence, my whole body remembered. And for that moment in time, it was maybe 45 minutes. It was just this sense of greater aliveness that I experienced again. That like your friend maybe I hadn't felt in quite some time and I think sometimes there's that shift between you know the need to adapt quickly to the present circumstances so that we can continue to function and the distance between that and how it feels to be really fully alive or more in sort of I want to say in in highly saturated technicolor um, of the presence of of everyday life when we're actually allowed to be out physically interacting with people yeah, and I find that that can come and go. That this kind of moving forward and grieving mm. and creativity and the rest of it, it fluctuates in and out. Or at least, certainly, that's been my experience.
1: Um, yes, and uh, what, the memory is a wonderful thing. And you know, it's 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 lovely to hear the, the way you describe that—that that your memory of being with her. Um, informed your response, even though she couldn 't hear you when you were singing and and I think we find that in our, all our relationships and certainly as well clinically uh, with patients with whom we worked for a long time, that that memory also can carry forward into the technologically mediated communication to help us to make a connection. Mm. I think, too, one of the things we're both doing as we're talking about this is we're kind of shifting back and forth from talking about what it's like to feel connected and acknowledging the losses when we have to connect technologically. Mm. And it seems to me that keeping that dichotomy in the forefront is a very useful thing. Um, After all, We all are in this context. It's a shared experience. And um, we need to uh, certainly clinically, but perhaps with our families and loved ones, keep acknowledging what's happening, the reality of what's happening. For instance, um, when one uh, perhaps launches into a social Zoom connection or certainly a clinical Zoom connection, there's a great temptation to deny that there is separation, that we're just talking on screens. And to a certain extent, I guess that can be useful in that it, again, keeps the illusion of telepresence. But at the same time, it's terribly important to acknowledge this greater context that we're dwelling in, which is um, that we can't make a connection and that there is a pandemic happening it remind it reminds me of the story of Winnicott um, at the British uh, psychoanalytic institute in the midst of the controversial discussions where people during the war they were arguing back and forth in a very intense way and the air raid sirens started to go off. And he raised his hands and he said, you know, I wish to point out that there's an air raid going on <laughs> with the idea that perhaps they need to go to the shelters. And uh, people for some time, from what is reported, kept arguing. So I think you know, there's something important about acknowledging that there's an air raid going on, <laughs> mm. that we all are in this emergency, this frightening emergency together, and that Being in that context makes us all share an experience. Mm.
0: Something that has been on my mind quite a bit that you touched on earlier that I think I'd like to dive into a bit more is um, the sense of what stage one's at in this process and this... It mm-hmm. feels like almost a social pressure to learn five new languages and a new instrument and in how to bake the perfect banana bread or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, and I find mm-hmm. that, you know, this, this is something which is not sexy to discuss and it's not something that people really want to lean into and to talk about, but it's, it's present for a lot of people. And one of the things I've noticed this week, so we're now in the beginning of week five, is that my motivation has really dipped Um, And I'm finding myself more easy to frustrate with even things like trying to edit the podcast. And (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what you can offer in terms of your insight of how to work with this or ways in which we can relate to it in a way that allows for whatever is arising without um, adding to the stress of it. I'm not sure how to address the question, but maybe what are some of the themes that come up when you're dealing with these issues Mm -hmm. with clients? that can be helpful in, in these moments? One of the useful
1: things um, I found recently it was, is a beautiful interview of David Kessler, who worked mm. with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief. Yeah. Um, and one he points out that everyone is going through the stages of grief. Um, so, you know, starting with denial Um, this is not going to affect us then the anger you're trapped at home frustrated you're taking away my activities then the bargaining you know well okay if I keep social distance for a couple of weeks then everything's going to be okay (laughs) then the grief and the sadness you know I don't know when this will end and then finally the acceptance yeah this is happening I've got to figure out how to proceed with this. And he's added another stage, which is meaning, making meaning of of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's something about having compassion for oneself, first of all. If you're frustrated, if you feel like you just are a bit stir-crazy, you don't know what to do, you know, of course you are. (laughs) And so... (laughs) (laughs) how can you think about this and one thing is finding control in small places we're completely out of control in the macro sense but there there are ways to control our everyday lives the routine that we have keeping a safe distance learning to work virtually um, dividing up our lives in the day into a routine that we might not otherwise have had so I think concentrating down, distilling things down and trying to find a balance in how you think. Yes, there there is the fear of becoming ill, of your loved ones becoming ill, of not knowing when this is going to end. But there is a way of balancing this and thinking about another image of life. Yes, people do get sick, but they also recover. Mm. Um, not everyone one loves dies so there's looking at the balance and and in the small things
0: i'm curious what changes um you might be most surprised by in the last few weeks of this global situation Hmm. (laughs) i guess for me i don't
1: know whether it's so much changes as getting my head round that it is a global situation, Mm. that it's everyone, that it's planetary. Um, I think I have have never experienced being immersed in a sort of ongoing situation with no known outcome before. Mm. I understand that my parents in the Second World War were... But I myself have been fortunate enough not to be in that situation. So I think getting my mind around the helplessness, um, the impotence that one feels, and then trying to deal with that has been an enormous shift for me.
0: And as a person, so not just in your role as a clinician, but Mm -hmm. um, in in your personal life as well, I wonder... If you are at the stage at which this question is relevant, now I'm thinking of all the caveats, (laughs) um, what feeling or vision do you want to hold during this time when you feel able to hold it?
1: I think what I have been holding on to is the light that um, illuminates life through human creativity. (laughs) And... um, in in a small way, because I've only been able to read uh, light books, mysteries, things like that. But on Twitter, Patrick Stewart <laughs> has been reading a sonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet a day, yeah. um, clearly from his home. Yeah. And there's something very beautiful about his doing that, his offering it. And the fact that Shakespeare wrote those sonnets to begin with. In other words, that beauty, that um, vibrancy, I think is something that we need to hold on to in the same way as the, the um, videos of the Italians all singing from their balconies. Mm. Um, a video I saw today of a most talented woman named Louise singing outside of Waitrose in Bracknell, <laughs> Um, quite extraordinarily, she was clearly a Waitrose employee and um, was entertaining the people who were social distancing, standing in a queue wow. to get in, and was unbelievable. If you look in at the Bracknell News, you'll probably find the clip of it. Okay. But th- those <laughs> the, those kinds of things that that lift the heart Mm. and that make us know that however dark things are, it, it reminds me of the quote from Anne Frank, you know, that human beings have the capacity to be creative, to be loving, to be compassionate. I see that in my relatives continuing to work in um, dangerous hospital situations. I see that in my colleagues continuing to make contact with their patients um, despite all of their own distress at their situations mm-hmm. and carrying their patients' distress. You know, those, I think those are the important things to hold on to, the, you know, the small but illuminating beauties that we have always been able to offer. And I'll tell you something personal. <laughs> so we've my husband and I have just finished rewatching every single Star Trek Next Generation Yay! ever made. Amazing. <laughs> and we are now starting Deep Space Nine. Oh, I love Deep Space Nine. Right, right. And just to remind everyone that um there is we just saw it last night. In episode four mm. there is a very prescient <laughs> episode about a virus called Babel Um, and we sat there not knowing it was coming and thinking oh my goodness everyone has to see this because you know for what it's worth anybody who understands the value of Star Trek knows (laughs) that there's a vision of a future there's a vision of the universe there's a vision of planets coming together that's what we need to hold on to (laughs) however Unsophisticated that may (laughs) seem.
0: I love that you love Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. And actually, that weaves beautifully into the penultimate question, which was going to be what vision of the world Mm. do you want to work towards? (laughs) What new normal would you like there to be? Um, Right. It's a big question, but I am curious what your thoughts are on that.
1: Mm. I think it will be a new normal. I do not think we will go back to the way it was. Mm -hmm. And And the first answer I would give you is, I don't know, but I'm musing about it. A lot of people have asked me, do I think that because we're all using technology to communicate so much that we will never go back to being appreciating, Hmm. working, um, communicating in an embodied shared space again? My gut feeling is... Um, That's not what's going to happen. I think that this enforced separation is making everyone deeply value Mm. sharing life in an embodied, um, shared environment. So I think and I hope that what will happen is while we will appreciate the links that technology can give us, that we will come back to the world with a reborn value of what it's like to be in a shared environment with another human being and how very precious it is, how we are wired to communicate that way, how touch, how exchange is so very important mm. in continuing mental health. And where we'll need to go, and this was this was communicated to me by a colleague of mine in China hmm. who has I hope, been through the worst of the virus and they are actually contemplating possibly going back to work. Mm -hmm. And what she said was, we're going to have to discover trust all over again. Trust in the journey. So trust in the journey, the journey to get to wherever you have to go, in this case to your therapist or to your office. Trust in the environment. And that is the environment which the therapist provides the safe environment can they keep it safe is it um is it disinfected is it uh is it private all the things that we just have taken to, for granted up up until now mm. and the therapists themselves can they trust in the environment and finally and reciprocally trust in each other mm. both in a very concrete way are we going to keep each other safe are we going to infect each other? You know, how can we judge? But also trust in our communications in being able to rely on the other person. And I think we're going to have to renew all that. And it may be a slow process mm. with uh, some faltering, with some fits and starts.
0: Well. Well, so in that case, I shall close with this question, which is, what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment in time?
1: I think that's a good question. (laughs) The question would be twofold. I think, what are you missing? Even though it's really painful to stay with that, it's important to know, what are you missing? What have you lost? What does that mean for you? And the other side of the question, what either have you gained right now, because there must be some gains in this experience, and also what do you wish for when we are all back to where we have some freedom of movement? What what gains do you want? What do you want to reinstall in your life? So... Both sides of that coin, and I think, you know, one of the keys to being, to mental health is to be able to appreciate the shades of grey. It's not all black and white. It's not just loss, and it's not just gain. There's a spectrum there, and if one can hold on to those shades of grey, one can stay rooted in reality.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash the Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Natalina High. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.